Well, it's great to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. The scripture reading comes from Galatians 5. I'm going to be reading verse 13 through verse 15, though we'll be looking at more of the passage than just that. But let me read these uh, couple of verses for us. Uh, we believe that these words were written by the Apostle Paul, but we also believe that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you do not become consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are finishing today, as Barrett mentioned earlier, a three-week series on singleness or the single life. And really, we, we hope that this has been applicable to everyone, but we, we wanted to kind of look at some passages of Scripture and, and pay special close attention to those uh, who are single, to those who are not married. We've talked about the reality of singleness. We talked about sex and dating in singleness. But today, I want to talk about the freedom or the opportunity of singleness. Uh, now, this passage is a, a great passage for us. It's, it's incredibly helpful. It's not obviously particularly about the freedom of singleness, but one of the things that it does is it helps us to understand how to think about freedom and how to use our freedom. And before we get into it, I just want to say the reason that we've taken all this time to talk to the single men and women in our body is that you're an important part of our body. We love you. This is an important time of life. I think that the church uh, has in many ways kind of idolized marriage and said, well, your, your Christian usefulness really begins when you get married. And, and we just want to say, no, God has called some people to singleness for the rest of their lives. He's called some people to singleness for a season. And that is an incredibly important calling. That is an incredibly important season, if it's a short season or if it's a long season. And, and we want you, if you are single, to use that time of your life, if it's for a short time for the rest of your life, in a way that ultimately pleases the Lord. But, but there are a lot of freedoms in singleness. Uh, one of the things that marriage and having children do is they kind of bind you in a way that that you don't have when you're single. And, and a lot of the decisions that you, you have to make w without having a spouse or without having children can, can a kind of be overwhelming. And that's particularly true today. I mean, there was a time in world history when people basically lived in the town that they were born in, right? Maybe you moved to the town over, or maybe you moved to like the one large town in the region, but that was basically it. But, but now, I mean, you can 
the, the decision of where you're going to live. I mean, that's daunting. You can live anywhere. You can go anywhere. The, there's marketable jobs. There's translatable uh, productivity in, in all sorts of different places. And that's a really good thing. That's a gift, but it's also kind of a daunting thing. There was a time in world history where you only did like five jobs. Like when you you knew I was going to do like, I was either going to be a farmer or like a blacksmith or maybe a preacher. I mean, that was it. The, there wasn't this diversified job market. And usually you did what your family did. You just kind of stayed in that business. But now, I mean, the pressure of choosing a career, the pressure of making the right career decisions and making sure that you're making strategic moves to move up the career platform. Again, th this is a gift. This is a good thing. But that freedom can kind of be daunting in the same way, you know, there was a time in world history where you basically married like one of three people or so that were basically coming to marriage age in your town. It was like, well, there's three girls that you can choose from, you know, or there's three guys that you could, that's it. I mean, it was, these are the girls that you could potentially marry. But now, I mean, you live in a town with thousands of men and women of your basically marriage age that you could choose from. And not to mention things like Match.com or other dating sites where it's like basically every single human being is a possibility for you out there. I mean, that, that, again, that's, that's amazing, but it's also can be completely overwhelming and daunting. And so I think that this passage, when we kind of think about freedom and the good of freedom, but also the kind of overwhelming nature of freedom, I think it's incredibly helpful for us. And so three things I want to talk about today, the way of freedom, the good of freedom, and the right use of freedom. So let's begin with the way of freedom. Now, this passage was written by the Apostle Paul, as I said before, to a church, to the Galatian church. And the people of Galatia were struggling with something that we still struggle with. The, the problems of the Bible kind of changed form, but they're, they're the same problems over and over again. And it's the problem of self-justification. I've said this before, but, but grace is the great stumbling block of Christianity. There are times in maybe your life and in, in our life and in a life of a Christian where we realize we need grace, right? We, we realize we've sinned. We've realized how bankrupt we are morally, and we realize we need some sort of a Savior. But, but a lot of times in the Christian life or in anybody's life, we forget our need, we begin to believe that we actually are righteous. We, we, we like self-justification. We like being able to say, I did this and they didn't. Therefore, I'm in good with God and they're not. Now, we don't say that out loud, right? You, you know better than to say that out loud. But in your heart, you think, man, aren't I such a great person? I read my Bible. I do this. I do that. I serve. I go to these things. It's the same thing that was happening uh, in this time. And one of the things we talked about last week in the, uh, in the sermon talkback, we talked about sex and dating last week. And, and I grew up in kind of an age where it was common in the church to have kind of a, a purity culture and people gave each other purity rings and all these kinds of things. And there was some good intentions. But, but what happened in that world is that there became like a line of like, well, look, just don't do this sexually. And if you don't do that, you can do whatever else you want, but just don't do this and you'll be pure. And, and there was no motivation 
motivation for loving God and pursuing his design and order. It was just self-justification. It was just, I've done this thing, therefore I'm awesome and I'm going to have an awesome marriage. And that teaching, that kind of self-justification teaching is ultimately not salvific, is ultimately incredibly harmful to your soul. But it's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. Now, now for them, the issue was circumcision. As I said two weeks ago, throughout the history of Israel, people from the outside, and when I say from the outside, I mean they weren't children of Abraham. They weren't descendants of Abraham. People from the outside came in. They came to believe that the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was the true God. They began to follow his law and listen to his word and take on his customs, including circumcision. So men from other uh, nations would come into Israel, come to be a part of the people of Israel, and they, like the Jewish men, would have to be, as a part of that, circumcised in order to join with the people, as well as take on all of the other traditions of the people. So now we're in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. People have come to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And people from all different nations, from, from all tribes are coming in. Gentiles are coming to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so these Jewish people are confused by this. And they're saying, well, of course, they need to be circumcised. What good God-fearing man isn't circumcised. Of course you have to do this righteous fulfillment of the law. Every godly person, of course, does this thing. It's the same thing we do today. Well, of course you would do this. Of course you would have this standard. Of course you would. How do we know that your heart is right? You've done the thing. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But why? It wasn't arbitrary, okay? It wasn't just some random thing that people did. No, it was a sign of the covenant because it pointed to something. What was the hope of the covenant that God had made with Abraham? And the answer is, it was the offspring, right? God said, I am going to bless your offspring, and this offspring is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And so it makes sense that the sign of the covenant would have something to do with the coming offspring, the hope of the covenant, that would be a blessing to the whole world. But now what has happened? The offspring has come. The, the ultimate child of Abraham that has now blessed the whole world was, of course, Jesus. In, in one sense, this covenant has been fulfilled, and Jesus has actually given us a new covenant, a new covenantal sign. The sign of the new covenant we're actually going to celebrate today is baptism, right? And it's not arbitrary. It points to something. Resurrection, right? The, the hope of the new covenant, the hope that in Christ we will have a new life in him. And so this is, Paul is explaining this and he's saying, look, why are you so worried about this? Why are you so worried about this religious self-justifying practice? Circumcision has been fulfilled. Look at verse six. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This, this sign has passed. You're, you're, you're creating an unnecessary 
function of, of law, of self-justification. But what matters? I love this. What matters in Christ? Only faith working through love. Faith working through love. The amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus is that through faith in him, he has set us free from all of this self-justification that so weighs us down, from all this thing inside of us that wants to prove ourselves and prove how righteous we are and prove how good we are. Jesus has set us free from all of that. And this is what Paul is really arguing throughout the whole book of Galatians. You have been set free from the law. You have been set free from self justification, you have been set free from trying to overcome your sin with some sort of a good work. Because the truth of the matter is, we can't overcome our sin. Now, Christians understand the brokenness of our heart. Christianity is different than a lot of world religions. And, and one of the major differences is this. All world religions are concerned with external behavior, right? You have to behave in a certain way. Every world religion has some sort of a law that tries to help people to do good things, right? And Christianity is concerned with that too, right? There are laws against doing external things that are sinful, doing, you know, uh, doing external things that, that harm other people, doing external things that are, are ultimately against God's order of what is right and good. But Christianity goes a step further, Christianity actually speaks not only to our external actions, but actually to our heart. Jesus famously talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he says, for example, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And you hear that and you're like, okay, you know, I can probably do that. I can probably be faithful to a spouse. I can probably obey that. I can keep that external action from happening. But then he says... But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. And you hear that and you're thinking, well, how can I do that? How can I do that, Lord? But don't you see, what does it matter what you do if, if your heart is already messed up? You know, a professor in seminary one time said to me, if the only thing keeping you from sin are the consequences of that sin or the opportunity to do that sin, then what does that say about your heart? Isn't that true? If the only thing keeping you from sin is like, well, if I do this, then everybody will think I'm a bad person and I don't want that, but I really want to do this. <laughs> you're, you're, by God's grace, you haven't sinned. You haven't done that thing. That's better than not, but that doesn't speak to your heart. Jesus also said, you know, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And of course you hear that and you're like, okay, well, of course, right? Only bad people murder people. I'm not one of those kind of people. But then he says, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, I say to you, if you call someone a fool, you're liable to the judgment of hell. You think, well, <laughs> hold on, who can do that? See, Christianity is, it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't just speak to external action. It also speaks to the heart. But Christianity actually goes one further. It doesn't just speak to external action. It doesn't just speak to the heart. It actually speaks to the heart when you're trying to do something good. 
One, one of the most haunting passages that Jesus kind of gives or the things that Jesus says, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15. And he says of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Basically what Jesus is saying here is there is a way to do the right thing, but with the wrong heart. And I am not pleased with that. Don't you see our problem? It's not just our actions we need a savior for. It's our desire for the wrong sorts of things that we need a savior for. And it's even the heart posture we have when we're doing the right things. Who can save us from this, right? How are we to be made righteous? How are we to be set free? And of course, the answer is only through faith in Jesus. It's this faith in Jesus that creates a posture, a right posture of love for God and love for others in us. You know, Josh Yusuf sent me uh, this little video clip of this Alistair Begg sermon this week. And it was a great little clip. Uh, there was this old phrase that people used to use in evangelism all the time. You know, if you were going to go to heaven and stand before the angels and they were to say, why should we let you in? What would your answer be? Right. And you may have heard somebody use this in evangelism. But Alistair Begg said, look, if you answer that question in the third per in the first person, rather, you're already wrong. <laughs> Anything you say in the first person well, I did this, I behaved, or even I believed. He says, the only right answer is the third person. He did this. He has let me in. He has called me. He has saved me. He has redeemed me. He has given his life for me. He has made me righteous and clean. He did this for me. Alistair Begg goes on to talk about the thief on the cross. You know, think about that guy. I mean, you know, Jesus, of course, saves him right there. He goes to heaven. What, what is he going to say? You know, why are you here? He, has, he knows nothing of the Bible. He knows nothing of doctrine. He has no, like, I had no time to do anything righteous in his life. In fact, the very th the thing that he did right before he died was to cuss out Jesus. You know, the only thing he could say, and it's this, it's this famous quote, the only thing he could say is that the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross invited me and said I could come. He, this is the amazing news of the gospel. Knowing that we were dead in our sins, knowing that our hearts were broken, God sent Jesus to live out perfect righteousness. And Jesus always did the right thing. Not only with his behavior, he always wanted to do the right thing. And while he was doing the right thing, he was doing them with a Godward delight. His heart was always pure. His heart was always right. He alone was righteous. And here's what Jesus has done. He took all of his righteousness and exchanged it for all of our unrighteousness. He became, for our sake, the curse of God so that we in him could be set free and be made right. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse of disobedience to the law, by becoming the curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, God's blessing might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. With a broken heart like yours and a broken heart like mine, how are we to be set free? How can we overcome this? And the answer is the only way is through Jesus who lived a righteous life, who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, totally forgiving us and gives us his righteousness. We are credited we are counted righteous in Jesus. And now the blessing of God has been revealed. And if you believe this, if you believe that you've been so forgiven, if you believe that God has given you such a righteousness, I'm telling you, what that will produce in you, if you're really living by this kind of faith, what that will produce in you is an actual love for God and an actual love for others that actually produces a righteous life. And this brings me to my second point, which is the good of freedom. The good of freedom. When people hear about Christian free grace, right? When people hear about Christian freedom, they immediately think, well, if Jesus has done everything, then why do I have to do anything, right? If Jesus has done it, if I get his righteous, then what does my life mean? Why don't I just live like the thief on the cross, right? And then at the end, you know, say, Jesus, I need you and I can do whatever I want, right? Why not just do that? And this question has been asked through church history. It's a question Paul had to address many times. Paul, of course, talks about this question in the, God, in the book of Romans. He says, if God's grace is on display in saving faith and saving us from sin, right, then why not go on sinning? So God's grace will be on display all the more. If I'm counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, why do I need to do anything? And this is what Paul is saying here. You are free. Christ has set you free. You haven't been made free by your obedience to the law. You haven't been made free by doing anything, but you're perfectly free by the work of Jesus. Now, don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another, and you could add, and serve God. Saving faith, if you really had saving faith, if you really believe that God and his kindness has set you free in Christ, it will produce in you love, genuine love. There's an old Belgic confession. It was written in 1651, and I, I, I looked to it many times. One of our first members here was, is a guy named Robert Lathowers. He's from Belgium. I don't know if Robert's here today, but the Flemish people are good with their church confessions. So here we go. Listen to this. This is so helpful. We believe that this true faith produced in us by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new creatures causing us to live a new life and freeing us from the slavery of sin. That's that word freedom again. Okay, so here's what this saving faith does. This is important. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith 
quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Did you hear that? What this is saying is that without justifying faith, your motivation for good behavior, good works, will actually only be love of self. I'm doing this to get saved. I'm doing this to avoid condemnation. I'm doing this so God will bless me. But if you already have salvation, if you already have perfect righteousness in Christ, if you're already, you could say it this way, rich in righteousness, if you've already been totally forgiven, if God has loved you so much, then and only then are you free to actually love God in return without trying to get something. You don't have to try to get something. He's already given you everything. Then you're free to actually love him in a covenantal way to talk about last week and not in a marketplace way, see? Then you're actually free to love one another and serve one another, not always having to be seen, not always having to care who's seeing me, who knows what I'm doing. No, you're free free to actually just love people because you are rich in righteousness and God has made you rich in love. The Belgian Confession is saying, and I agree with it, actually the only way to righteous deeds is if total righteousness has already been given to you, which is what we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes on. So then it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being. Seeing that we do not speak of any empty faith, but what of Scripture calls. And then hear what? He goes back to the Galatians passage. This is our passage. Faith working through love, which moves people to do by themselves the works that God has commanded in the word. This is the good of freedom. When you are free, you can actually serve. You can actually love God and others. You are so moved by the gospel that you really want to do the right thing because you love God. Your heart is pointed Godward. This is the evidence of saving faith. This is the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. And again, this is why we need this. This is why we need this. This is why we need baptism. This is why we need Bible study. This is why we need Christian community because we are so prone to forget the gospel and to slide back into some sort of self-justification that will only either at best leave you anxious and nervous and at worst leave you incredibly arrogant. We are so prone to slide back into some sort of self-justification and away from this gift of freedom in the gospel. That's why we need one another. We need preaching. We need Bible study. We need baptism. We need these things to increase our faith because this is the, this is the principle where faith increases, love increases. The better and more complete your faith is in Jesus, the better and more complete your love for God and for others will be. Here's the truth. One day you won't need faith. I can't wait for the day when I don't need faith. I won't need faith because I'll see Jesus face to face. It won't be hard to believe. 
His presence will be fully known, unmitigated by a fallen world. And you know what I'll do? You know what I'll do in that day? And you know what you'll do in that day? You'll never sin. You'll never want to sin. You'll, you'll, you'll love everyone perfectly because you'll, you'll ultimately see the beauty of God and it'll change you and shape you. But until that day, we need faith and we need to be participating in the kinds of things that increase our faith. We need to remember the gospel. Which brings me to the third point. We've talked about the way of freedom. We've talked about the good of freedom. But lastly, and very practically, I want to talk about the right use of freedom. And and particularly here, I want to talk to my single friends, even though this is really true for all of us. Christian single, you have been set free in Christ. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. And, you know, Christian single, you, you also have a lot of other freedoms. You are free from the responsibility of a husband or a wife, and that is a big responsibility. You are free from the responsibility, uh, in many cases, unless you're a single parent, of raising children. And that is a really big responsibility. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You know, we call this sermon the great paradox, and and here's the great paradox. And I, I believe this from the bottom of my heart. The more you live for yourself, the less satisfied you yourself will be. But the more you live for others, for God and other people, the more satisfied you will be. This is true. Ask anyone. They'll tell you this is true. But it shouldn't be true. It's counterintuitive, right? It should be the more you live for yourself, the more satisfied you are, the happier you are. Forget about others. You do you. You take care of you. You do your thing. You only live once, right? Don't don't miss out. Live life to the fullest. Live for yourself. But actually, the more you live for yourself, the less satisfied you'll be. The more you live for yourself, the more self-absorbed you'll be. And in a fallen world, if you're self-absorbed, you'll always be disappointed. I'm going to go ahead and break something to you, all of us. The world wasn't designed for you. If you're only living to be self-absorbed for yourself, you'll always be disappointed. You'll always be frustrated because you were made by God not to be self-absorbed, but to be God-absorbed. You were made for Him. And and if you always find yourself living for yourself, that just doesn't work. You'll never be complete. You'll never, you'll never be satisfied. In fact, you'll be totally unsatisfied. But if you understand this paradox and begin living for God and living for his people, how he designed you to live, there is so much satisfaction and peace there. Single friends, we did this series, but again, I hope it's helpful to the whole church, but particularly there are some idols around you if you're single that you've got to watch out for that can so steal away your Godward desire. And the first idol that we talked about is marriage, right? Again, an idol is any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. 
An idol is a good thing that you start desiring more than you desire God, that you find your delight in more than you find your delight in God. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift of God, but it can become an idol. And you can begin to believe if you're single, oh, if I just get married, then I'll be happy. Then things will be good. Then I'll be satisfied. Then everything in my life will make sense. And one of the things we've been saying in the first sermon and others, watch out for this idol. Another idol that you could be prone to is just companionship. I, always having to have someone around you. Look, I believe in companionship, having friends, having a community. This is important. It's how you're designed. But there's also something to being alone sometimes. And God can speak to you and God can move in your life without anyone around. Don't make that an idol. Watch out for the idol of work. Again, some, oftentimes without a, a spouse or children, you can, you can overly emphasize working life. Everybody's prone to this. Again, work is a gift. Work is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not ultimately where satisfaction is found. And then finally, there's the idol of pleasure. Look, pleasure is good. There, there is certainly a time for fun, but watch out. The pursuit of pleasure can rule you, and it can keep you away from things that God is calling you to. Remember, the more you live for yourself, the less satisfied you will be, but the more that you live for others, for God and other people, the more satisfied you will be. So, so to close, let me just give, and this is particularly to my single friends here, three practical things to think about. First, in thinking about this paradox and thinking about how to use your freedom, first, make corporate worship a priority. Be here. Be with your church family. Like, I don't care if you were out late last night. That's okay. Just be here. Make this a part of your rhythm. Look, there's, there's a time for trips and doing that, but, but one of the mistakes that I see single people making is they, they fill up every weekend and they don't prioritize corporate worship. Again, you're going to miss uh, a Sunday here or there, but, but if that becomes a habit, if that's more often than not, that's not what God's called you to. Don't neglect this. Make this a priority. This isn't a time for brunch with friends. No, it's a time when the people of God are gathering together. And if you are one of those people, you are called to be there. Make corporate worship a priority. Number two, this is a good one. Take on a responsibility that you won't like a few weekends this year, but that you'll be really glad you took on in 10 years. Okay? Take on a responsibility that a few weekends this year, you'll be like, oh, why did I sign up for that? But in 10 years, you'll be like, man, I'm so glad I did that. And if you don't know what that is, if you're like, what is that? Just ask somebody that's 10 years older than you. When, when I was in college, I went to a church there in Auburn, great church. But the, the, the college Sunday school was like, it's just kind of corny. And some friends of mine and I were really growing in our faith. You know, Barrett Fisher was one of those guys. And it just was kind of corny, and we wanted something more, right? It was just kind of like a middle school ministry for college kids, you know? And so I went to the pastor of the church. I knew him. He was kind of mentoring some guys. And I said, look, his name was Steve. I said, you know, Pastor Steve, I was like, can we start a, like, college Sunday school class for people that are kind of growing in their faith? 
And he said, Jason, it's a great idea. Why don't you start it? <laughs> and you know what? That would have been an awesome opportunity. I mean, as a big church, great church, wonderful church, in a college town, I wanted to be a pastor. I mean, this was an amazing opportunity he was giving me, incredible opportunity. But you know what I thought? I was like, man, well, then I got to be there every weekend. And I can't do road trips with my buddies. I'll have to prepare every week for this. And I said, no. And you know what? I greatly regret that. It was a mistake. It was a, it, was a, it was a mistake that a young man would make. I wish I would have had the foresight to say, you know what, this is going to hurt me like three or four weekends. But in 10 years, in 20 years now, I'll be really glad that I did that. I wish I would have done that. Take on something. Serve your church. Serve the body. Serve people in such a way that you're going to be upset. You're, like three weekends this year, you're going to be like, man, dang it. I've got to show up for that. But in 10 years, you'll be like, I'm so glad I did that. That was the thing I should have been, that was satisfying. And then number three, and this is just a very simple one, just be known as a committed person. If you're a Christian, and this is true for all of you, just be known as a committed person. If you say you're going to be somewhere, even if something more fun comes up, just be like, I'm going to honor what I said. I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do this thing. Or if somebody asks you to commit to something, go ahead and commit to it. Don't wait for a better opportunity to come around. Trust the Lord in that. Be the kind of person that lives for God and that lives for others. Don't use your freedom just for yourself. Leverage your freedom for others. Christian single, listen, you are free. You're free in Christ and you have a lot of other freedoms, but don't use your freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love, serve one another. And I want, to, I want you to hear this. You know why Christian single, Christian married person, all Christians can do this. Why can we give ourselves away? Why, why aren't we the kind of people that aren't always taking the maximum, uh, getting the maximum thing for ourselves out of the freedoms and privileges we have? You know why we're those kind of people? You know why we can give our privilege away? Because we serve a Lord who gave all of his privileges away. Remember Philippians 2? Jesus, who was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, to use for his own advantage, but rather he made himself a servant. He humbled himself. He served us. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sake. Don't you see who our Lord is? not the one who's taking full advantage of all of his advantages, of all of his privileges for himself, but, but who's taking his freedom. Who's, ta who's more free than Jesus? Jesus is ultimately free. He's God. And yet, he took all of those freedoms and he used them to serve us. Let's be the kind of people that in faith increase in love for him and for his people as we follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus who did not consider equality with you a thing to be used for his own advantage, but 
He has humbled himself. He has made himself a servant, our servant, so that we could be set free, so we could live the lives that you've called us to, Lord, and help us to use our advantages not just for ourselves but for the sake of others, single, married, old, young. May we be those kind of people. I do pray particularly right now for my single brothers and sisters here that this would be for them such a fruitful time of life. If it's for only a short season or if it's for the rest of their lives, may it be such a fruitful time, Lord. May they be fully devoted to you. May they find their identity and life in Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.